Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's western Germany that is over 2000 years old, but until it became what is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that represent European history like a microcosm. What can you expect in this episode? Well, nothing less and more than the end of Roman Cologne. As sad as it sounds, it is how it is. As always, before we dive into our chronological narrative, presenting this episode's random fact about Cologne. At Carnival, the people of Cologne dress up in costumes. Everything is allowed. Animal costumes, professions, horror or dress up as a celebrity. On average, a Cologne resident spends 62 euros a year on his or her costume. That is 75 US dollars. So, that was the fact of this episode. Why so short? Well, we really have a lot to talk about. On to the intro. In the last episode, we dived into the realm of legends. We talked about the life and death of Saint Ursula, who later in the Middle Ages found great veneration throughout Europe. We will return this episode to the ground of facts as far as this is possible from the small number of historical sources that are available to us. Well, it is slowly time to say goodbye. Farewell to the Romans and their empire. But where one path ends, another path opens. It will be the same with Cologne. So it is best to start with a man who had a lasting influence on the Rhineland, but also on the entire Western Roman Empire at the beginning of the 5th century. For the bad or for the good? Well, historians have been arguing about that ever since. This man was called Stilicho. Stilicho was the military commander of the West from the year 395 until his assassination in 408. And of course he had, like most of the commands of that time, a barbarian, non-Roman background. During this period, Stilicho probably sailed the Rhine several times and negotiated far-reaching alliance treaties with the Franks who resided there. Basically something we already know from previous alliance treaties. A settlement right on the left side of the Rhine, for example in the Roman Rhineland. In return, the Franks have to secure the border and the region of northeastern Gaul, thus Cologne as well. This later leads to the fact that even after the fall of Rome, the region will not collapse politically in the region. For locally, a political power of order was still present and had remained intact. The Franks. These treaties of alliances must have been good because the Franks kept these treaties to the Romans until the end of the Roman payments, at the latest around 450. But we will come to that later. In my personal opinion, Stilicho was still not quite good for the Rhineland. Not at all. In the year 401, he withdrew the Roman troops from the Rhine. There were other fronts in a still great empire that needed the soldiers more urgently. From then on, the year 401, it was actually the Franks who were solely responsible for the military protection of the region around Cologne and the Roman Rhineland, even the whole of northeast Gaul itself. But as I said, one can see and be amazed, the Frank nobles rendered loyal service and continued to see themselves as Roman subordinates of the empire. The Roman Rhine fleet near Cologne was also withdrawn by Stilicho. It was needed in North Africa. 
North Africa is still very far away today. One has to sail around Western Europe by ship until one reaches the Strait of Gibraltar to reach the Mediterranean Sea and then North Africa. The Roman border army on the Rhine and the Roman Rhine fleet. They would never return after 401. Certainly, the good military commander Stilicho had just the whole Roman Empire in view and the threat of the Italian peninsula by the Visigoths was of course a reason to neglect the border provinces and with it of course our beloved Cologne. With Cologne as part of the Roman Empire we should perhaps take a look, a short look, at how this empire fared in the 5th century. So a short fast forward from where we stopped two episodes before. The Visigoths, we had already covered them briefly some episodes before, did not always have the best relationship with the Romans, to say it carefully. To describe their changeful relationship with the Romans would of course go beyond the scope of this podcast. The short version, after the fateful Battle of Adrianople in 378, the Visigoths became allies or federates of the Romans again. After their flight from the Huns and at the latest since the year 382, both sides, Visigoths and Romans, had come to an to us unknown agreement. Between the Balkans and the Danube, the Visigoths were supposed to secure the border as federates of Rome. What was not the ideal place to settle? Why? Well, anyone who knows anything about European history knows that the Balkans have always been the highway for invading armies from the east to Europe. The Visigoths were soon to learn that as well. From the year 391 on, the Huns plundered the Danube and entered the Roman Empire in the Balkans. The Visigoths were not able to withstand the onslaught. Once again, for the felt hundredth time, they had to flee and give up their new home after only a short time. And adding to that, in 395, the Roman Emperor Theodosius also died. This made the matter clear to the Visigoths, whose legal opinion was as follows. Contracts were made with people. If one of the two contracting parties died, well then the contract was no longer valid. With the Huns breathing down their necks and the end of the treaty with Rome, the Visigoths moved on under their leader Alarich and sought anew above all safe home. And how they moved on? There were several stopovers in Greece on the Adriatic coast and then finally in Italy, just outside the city of Rome itself from the year 408 on. Two years later, in the year 410, something happened that nobody had thought possible. There, at the gates of the Eternal City, Alarich, the leader of the Visigoths, finally demanded for himself and his Visigoths a safe area to settle in the Roman Empire and an adequate supply for his people. Several times the Visigoths had demanded that their starving people be finally paid and provided for their services to Rome. In protest at the poor supply, they even besieged the city of Rome. The request remained unheard of on the part of the city of Rome and the imperial court in Ravenna did not give in. A retreat was no longer possible for Alarich and the Visigoths without sufficient provisions, so they had to make their threat become reality. Almost without a fight, the city of Rome fell into the hands of the Visigoths in 410. For three days the city was plundered. Again, I do not want to go too far. The fact that the city was looted is historically significant. The last time this had happened, that the city of Rome was sacked, 
was 800 years ago when an external enemy had conquered the city. Although, if you take a closer look, the Visigoths were not external enemies, but a mutinous mercenary army of the Romans. The Visigoths had been more or less allies of Rome until then. They had only become enemies out of necessity. And a three-day plundering of the city, well, that sounds very wrong from today's point of view, but that was the standard in that time for city plundering. So it was not a big barbaric act. Nevertheless, of course, it meant a considerable trauma for many people at that time who lived there in the city of Rome. Deaths, mutilations and many other inhuman acts will have taken place. Alarich, the leader of the Visigoths, will have been aware of the importance of the plundering of this city. Rome, the city of Rome, had not been the seat of power of the empire for almost a century. But morally, of course, the plundering was a shock that shook the entire late antique world and revealed the weakness of the western part of the Roman Empire. But even in Rome, there was not enough to supply the Visigoths. In the year 410, the same year of the sack of Rome, the Visigoths moved from there and soon they settled in southwestern Gaul, near the present-day city of Toulouse, where they founded their own barbaric empire, which they gradually took away from the central Roman power. The Visigoths will surely meet us again in the course of this podcast. Sorry for this excursion, but maybe you can guess why Rome no longer had the Rhine border and Cologne at the top of the priority list. The people of Cologne probably did not care much about the plundering of Rome in 410, for the Rhineland and Gaul had their own problems at that time. At the end of the year 406 it became cold in the Rhineland. Pretty cold. So cold that the Rhine River froze in many places. Since the Rhine River was straightened in the 19th century of our time, the flow rate of the Great River was still much slower than today. In this way the river froze over faster than today. I think the last time that the Rhine River in Cologne was frozen by the way was in 1963, but only because there had been frost for 4 months continuously. My father still remembers walking on the frozen Rhine as a child. Okay, I should not digress again. When the Rhine froze over, the natural wall that had been the Rhine between the Roman Empire and the land of the barbarians for centuries was gone. That now was the perfect time to cross the Rhine, well, you didn't have to tell the barbarian tribes on the other side of the Rhine twice. On New Year's Eve in the year 406 to 407, not only gangs but whole masses of Germanic Suebi, Burgundians, Aelans and Vandals crossed the frozen Rhine at a certain point and entered the empire. Above all, they invade the Roman Rhinelands. Where exactly they crossed the Rhine is not known to us, but it must have been somewhere in an area south of Cologne on today's Middle Rhine. The Franks, who were in Roman service, did their best to beat back the invaders, but they could not do anything against this concentrated superiority. Why had these Germanic people set out? Well, here too one can only speculate. Was it a famine, overpopulation, the fear of the Huns and the desire to flee to the supposedly safe Roman Empire? Or maybe a combination of all of these? As so often mentioned here, it is a time when we have little or in incomplete written sources and traditions. A disintegrating empire is not in the habit of being particularly thorough in the creation and archiving of events. Now something happened that the Romans had not thought possible. 
That barbarians plundered and pillaged their empire, well, that was something they were now used to enough. But that they now settled permanently in Roman territory and found their own empires was new. After all, in the Romans' imagination, Germanic peoples, those barbarians, could not do such a thing. They were not smart enough for that, to make empires. They could only live in small tribes and villages and pray to gods that were trees or something like that in their minds. But wait, could one of you say, many Franks, there were Germanics, after all, also settled in the Rhineland, the Roman Rhineland. True, they perform military services and are responsible for the security of the region, but these Franks in Roman territory are still loyal to the Roman administration of the respective province. In Lower Germania, the Franks were of course under the Roman officials in Cologne. The leading positions in the civil administration though continued to be occupied by Gallo-Romans, the Romanized people from the provincial population. This development had far-reaching consequences for Cologne. Germanic tribes like the Burgundians or the Alemanni established their own dominion along the Rhine. Each cut a piece of cake from the cake that once represented the Western Roman Empire. This caused for a map, of course, which I will put on the homepage of this podcast. Link to it always in the show notes. Other areas in Gaul, which remained under Roman leadership, gradually separated themselves from the central power in Italy. Local Roman elites took the lead. The Western Roman Empire, so today's Western Europe, in its entirety from the year 410 onwards, actually existed only on paper. This had massive consequences for the city of Cologne. A Roman colony, as it had been for almost 400 years, could not survive in its present form in a fragmented empire. If Rome, the central power, no longer sent soldiers to the Rhine to secure the city, if there was no longer any intact super-regional infrastructure to the rest of the empire, then this was life-threatening for a city on the edge of the world, the Roman world. But Cologne was comparatively lucky in this respect, when the Germanic tribes flocked to the Rhineland in 406. The capital of the neighboring Roman province of Upper Germania, today's city of Mainz, which has been mentioned several times in this podcast already, was conquered and plundered in the course of crossing the Rhine on New Year's Eve 46. Large parts of the population were murdered in the process. Other cities on the Rhine are also affected, such as the present-day cities of Worms, Strasbourg and Speyer. Even the city of Rams, which is located deeper in Gaul, lies in ruins during this period. Certainly messengers were sent to the Roman military commander Stilicho in Italy, but he had no capacity to secure the Rhine or Gaul. He had to fight with the Visigoths in Italy. An irony of history, Stilicho was himself a Vandal. He was the descendant of one of the barren tribes that crossed the Rhine that were plundering the empire at that time, which he had de facto ruled himself since 395 when he was announced as the new military commander. You see, things are really, really complicated in this era. Only a short time later, Stilicho was assassinated by a Roman intrigue in the year 408 and the eternal city of Rome was plundered shortly afterwards, as I just mentioned above. For the Christianized Romans, this time must have truly seemed like the end of the world, just as Revelation tells us in the Bible. And what did Rome do? Well, even the dissolution of the Germanic Gallic provinces in the first half of the 5th century 
did not bring about a change of heart at the Roman imperial court in Ravenna. For them it was better to continue internal civil wars that weakened the empire as a whole. And the new Germanic kingdoms on the Rhine, which after the crossing of the Rhine were actually officially hired as Roman federations, participated diligently. Like between the years 411 and 413, when Aelans and Burgundians, who controlled large parts of the Rhine, helped a local Roman named Jovinus to proclaim himself as counter-emperor. The historian Werner Eck assumes due to the geographical proximity that Cologne was also most likely under the rule of this counter-emperor supported by Germanic tribes. Even though the city was never conquered by Aelans and Burgundians, but the Roman administration in Cologne had probably realized that they would rather rely on the local rulers in the region than on the far-flung imperial court in Ravenna in northern Italy. Since you already know about some Roman counter-emperors, Vitellius or Silvanus or something like that, who were proclaimed on the Rhine, you can imagine how this candidate fared. Jovinus was murdered in 413 on the endeavor of the Western Roman Emperor Honorius. For such civil wars, the very last Roman troops were certainly withdrawn from the provinces of the empire. In the still Roman-controlled Rhineland, the Germanic troops thus remained more and more as the only force for order and security. After the assassination of the counter-emperor Jovinus in 413, Cologne is thus once again part of the Roman Empire, but is it really? In the midst of barbaric small kingdoms and dominions along the Rhine, Cologne is rather a small Roman island in the middle of a huge ocean. What the city of Cologne might have looked like at that time, phew, that's hard to say. Was there still a city council? Were there still rich Roman families who guide the destiny of the city? At least it is unlikely that the Cologne elite still exercised power beyond the city walls, as it had been in the heyday of the Roman colony of Cologne. The surrounding area of Cologne was either devastated or in Frankish hands or in the possession of other Germanic tribes. There are only a few small conclusions about the condition of the city at that time. Archaeological excavations on the Heumarkt, the Haymarket, a large central square in today's city center, show that there was still lively life in the city. But surely the city will have experienced some upheavals. Even within the city, people will have been farming on land that had been fallow since the plundering of Cologne in 355, in order to ensure the supply of the city and not to continue to depend on faraway imports. Even the surrounding area of Cologne was dangerous in those days. We must also expect a creeping but steady decline of the main infrastructure. It is true that the Hohestrasse, the Cardo Maximus, the north-south main road of Rome Cologne has continued to be repaired. The large sewer which ran along the Praetorium, the governor's palace, was perhaps still working. But certainly many small water lines made out of wood were broken and gone in the long term. The one or other thermal bath was converted from a bathhouse into a residential building. It is known from other regions that the water basins in the thermal baths were used to create living space, and a roof was simply built over them, while the building around it in which the basins were located disintegrated. Anyone who has perhaps recently played the new computer game Assassin's Creed in early medieval England, and no, this is not an advertisement, can discover such a transformation of a Roman thermal bath in the game world. 
However, with all this talk of decline, which seems to be the spirit of this episode, we should not forget. Despite all the threats and crises, Leitanti Cologne continued to be a great, significant urban structure in this part of Europe. During the golden age of Rome Cologne between the years 100 and 250, to which we dedicated two episodes in this podcast, around 20,000 people lived here. With some exceptions, this was a high number of inhabitants for a city until well into the 17th century, so for many centuries to go. Only after that did cities become significantly larger in area population due to industrialization and a higher living standard and inventions. Well, now in the 5th century, hardly ever so many people will have lived here. Wars, epidemics and the departure of Roman elites will have contributed their share to not insignificant population decline. But many will have remained. And also in times of great crises, people organized themselves when they lived together in large numbers. So there will have been an organizational structure in the city which unfortunately cannot be defined in more detail in Cologne at that time. We just don't have the knowledge. The decline of the Roman power became more and more noticeable in Cologne in the course of the 5th century. Starting from 401, the Roman troops left. Then a few years later, no more Roman coins came. Officials of the imperial court came also less and less to Cologne. Until then, sometime, not at all. The same applied maybe to merchants from Italy or the Eastern Mediterranean. So you have to imagine the end of Roman Cologne like this. Is not the case that Cologne and its surroundings were taken in one day by storm by Frankish troops and Rome went down on the Rhine with waving flags? Frankish units and settlers had already existed in the Rhineland for a long time. They had been settled there little by little as allies of the Romans, quasi as a private security company in Roman services. But as settlers they were also quasi the tenants in the Roman part of the Rhineland the landlord was therefore logically the Roman Empire. When now the landlord was no longer responsive more and more, that is when the Roman Empire more and more collapsed, the Franks simply took over the apartments themselves. That was not so difficult, the Franks had already been responsible for the military protection of the region. The Gallo-Romans remained the administrative civilian elite in the cities or even in the Christian church, until they merged with the Franks of the next decades and even several centuries. The Christian churches were even to become very important in this transition process, from late antiquity to the early Middle Ages, and I think in Cologne even in a very particularly strong way than compared to other places, but this is best discussed in more detail in another episode. As a military ruling elite, the Franks ruled over a population that was largely Christian and many of them were Romanized. The Franks themselves continued to be Germanic origin and being pagans. By the way, we do not have to assume that the Franks felt like conquerors and the old Gallo-Roman population as the oppressed. Rather, Frankish and Gallo-Roman elites entered into a marriage of convenience. The Franks were interested in the know-how of the Gallo-Romans. The Gallo-Roman elite, on the other hand, must not have forgotten that the Roman imperial court had now abandoned them too long and too often. The Franks, on the other hand, were barbarians, but at least you could count on their warriors and their commitment to secure the region you lived in. Over the decades and ultimately centuries, Frankish, 
other Germanic and Gallo-Roman institutions, customs and ultimately the population itself merged into what was to become in a very, very long time the medieval Germans. But the end of Roman Cologne, let's be real. When did the Roman times end in Cologne? The answer to this question you can guess already is rather unsatisfactory. We can shimmy along several possible answers. Let's give it a try. First of all, archaeology can help us again more precisely the study of Roman coins found in Cologne and the surrounding area. In the whole area of Cologne, no Roman coin has been found until today, which was minted after the year 408. So, shortly after the Germanic tribes crossed the Rhine for 647 and when the Roman troops were withdrawn in the year 401. An absence of Roman coins also means an absence of imperial troops. And what was Rome without its legions? Of course nothing. So, was this the end of Rome Cologne in the year 408? Well, one thing is certain. After 407, the already battered Roman central administration of Gaul imploded completely. The time is so chaotic and poor in written sources that it's impossible to reconstruct the exact role of the city of Cologne so far. And it is so confusing that every line here threatens to blow up this podcast episode, which it already does. Want an example? Roman rule in Gaul and on the Rhine flickered up again for three decades, from the 420s onwards. A military commander named Aetius, I hope this is the way you pronounce him in English, fought bravely against Huns, Goths, Vandals and other Germanic tribes on the Rhine, such as the Burgundians. Have I ever told you that the migration period is an extremely complex epoch and that it is an almost impossible task to present this in a compact way to do justice to the topic of this podcast? Aetius was born far away from Italy, somewhere in what is now Bulgaria. But he was a true Roman by birth and spoke Latin as his mother tongue. Thus, he is considered by some historians to be the last Roman. The Roman emperors of the western part were no longer worth mentioning. They were mostly weak rulers and pure figureheads who were completely dependent on their military commander. The great names of these military commanders from Abogast to Stilicho and even Aetius himself speak volumes. From the year 428, Aetius reconquered territories in Gaul and on the Rhine. Whether he also reconquered Cologne, which would mean that it had already been under Frankish rule before again, is not known. On the Rhine, Aetius then concluded alliance treaties with the Franks in the 440s, like many Roman supreme commanders before him. We do not know exactly what these treaties look like and whether he assigned to the Franks the Sea of Cologne as the dominion in process, which would be really tremendous effect for this history of the city of Cologne. So, Cologne might have been in Frankish hands since 408, it might have been in Frankish hands since the 440s, <laughs> we don't really know. So we have just simply to move on with chronology. The ancient world, and especially the Western Roman Empire, gave a great bloody farewell concert in 451. No, bloody was not a cursing word. I mean, it was really bloody. For reasons that we really don't have to go into here, the Hun King Attila attacked the Western Roman Empire. He drew a bloody and burned isle first through the Rhineland and then through Gaul itself. Whether Cologne was also planted in the process, I must confess I have not found any real proof, but Attila was certainly nearby. 
It is the Hunt's passage through the Rhineland at this time that leads to the legend of St. Ursula, which we covered in the last episode. It is said that hardly any city on the Rhine and in Gaul was spared the invasion, either by looting or at least by devastating the surrounding countryside by the Huns. On the Catalonian fields, in the heart of Gaul, the center of present-day France, Almost all the late antique powers of Western Europe faced up to the invasion. And my goodness, the composition of both armies is simply a symbol of this chaotic and complex time. On one side, Aetius fought under the banner of the Roman, the Western Roman Empire. The largest allies of the Romans were the Visigoths, those people who had sacked Rome just 40 years earlier, which even large parts of Gaul had gradually taken from the Romans. But here, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. On the other side was, of course, Attila with his Huns, and I told you it was complicated, the Ostrogoths, another branch of the Goths. So Goths were facing each other on both sides. But not only that, it was the same with the Franks. The Franks on the left bank of the Rhine, including the Franks in and around Cologne, fought on the Roman side with Aetius. The Franks on the right side of the Rhine, which we always called Free Germania, however had joined Attila in the hope of making big loot. Burgundians and Aelans in turn fought for Rome. So did the Alemanni, who had also been enemies of Rome for a long time and were now federated by the Romans. Remember, those Germanic tribes had crossed the Rhine 40 years earlier as well and plundered all the Roman provinces of the Rhineland and Gaul. So. It was a true battle of many ethnical backgrounds of that time, with many peoples fighting on both sides. Again the question, can anyone understand that one can despair of the epoch of late antiquity? Long story told in short, the battle ends quasi undecided. Neither side can clearly win on the Catalonian fields. But at least Attila's advance towards Gaul and then to Italy is stopped. Soon afterwards, the Huns retreat from Europe across the Rhine Cologne and then far, far to the east. Shortly thereafter, Attila dies by hemorrhage, I hope this is the right way to pronounce it, which Attila had contracted on his wedding night by, <clears throat> by enjoying this experience too much. What a sweet death for such a cruel ruler. Soon after his death, the empire of the Huns collapses without Attila who was able to unite all Han tribes and groups, and as suddenly as they had come from the Near East 80 years ago, the Huns disappeared again from Europe and from the stage of world history. The interesting thing about the battle on the Catalonian fields is, it is mainly the Germanic and barbarian troops that make up the bulk of the battle and bring about the decision, not the Huns or the Romans. The fact that the decision makers in the battle are Goths, Alemanni, Franks, Aelans and Burgundians is a foreshadowing of who the new rulers in Western Europe will be once the Roman Empire has fallen. Aetius did not fare better. Shortly after the battle, the powerless Roman Emperor in Ravenna believed that he could gain power himself by murdering his very successful military commander. This plan goes terribly wrong. He kills Aetius, yes, but shortly thereafter he loses his life, just like Aetius before him. The Western Roman Empire shrinks to Italy and a few areas in the Northern Balkans. Twenty years later, the Western Roman Empire goes down completely in the 470s. 
So that was the bloody farewell concert of late antiquity that I had announced to you in the last episode. We can certainly assume that some Cologne Franks also took part in this battle. We can even assume very surely. At the same time as this battle, at latest, came the end of Roman Cologne. I have told you many times already, in this episode alone, how little written sources are available for us for that time. But isn't there a single source that is available to us from this time? Well, in this sense, really, we have one. A single one. So it is that historians have always racked their brains over how to assess the letter of the Christian priest Salvian. Salvian may have been born in Cologne around the year 400. But perhaps he was also born in Trier or somewhere between the two cities. What is certain is that he had relatives in Cologne in the middle of the 5th century. During this time, he received a letter from a relative saying that he and his mother had been captured. They were now living in poverty and had to serve barbarians. Based on this statement, many historians assume that Cologne was military conquered by the Franks around the year 450, because how else would the Cologne relatives of Salvian have been captured? Salvian himself writes in his own writing that Cologne in this time was hostibus plena, that is Latin for full of enemies. When exactly this, the letter and the passage from his writings, was written well, that we do not know. Unfortunately, this does not help us to know exactly when the Roman rule in Cologne ended. Furthermore, the passage that Cologne is full of enemies doesn't have to be interpreted as meaning that Cologne was military conquered. If Aetius had indeed contractually assured the Franks of Cologne as the territory of the Franks from then on, then Salvian's statement could also be true. Oh, don't forget, many Frankish settlers already lived in the city of Cologne. Maybe he was referring to that fact. All these superstitions are unsatisfactory to you. How do you think I feel who is so interested in the history of Cologne? The end of the Roman era in Cologne will therefore probably not have been so abrupt. In this and the past episode, we have now experienced an increasing weakening of Roman power in this part of the empire. Although clearly noticeable, the end was gradual. More and more, as a result of this development, the Franks emerged as a new power factor in this region and thus also in Cologne. Which, of course, is only logical. Where a power vacuum is created, it will be directly filled by the next available power and these were the neighboring Franks. We must not forget that within Cologne many Franks had already settled and lived there. And by the year 440, at the latest, the entire area surrounding Cologne was surrounded by Frankish settlements that were only too happy to use the fertile soil of the Rhineland for agriculture. Only when exactly this happened, that the Franks were also in charge within the city, well, unfortunately, we do not know. Later Frankish source from the 8th century, so several centuries after these events, records that Cologne finally came under Frankish rule in 457. Even if the year 457 is not correct, but at the latest in the late 450s, the Roman era of Cologne ends completely. Are you sad? Cologne is now finally no longer part of the Roman Empire. There will therefore be no more side trips into Roman history. Just once again very briefly. 
Only a few years later, in 476, the last Western Roman and underage emperor is forced to abdicate. The Roman power had shrunk so much that it was no longer even considered necessary to murder the abdicated Roman emperor. What Caesar and Augustus had built some 530 years earlier breathed its life out with the slightest sigh. Now, the western part of the Roman Empire. The eastern part of the Roman Empire would continue to exist in extremely variable forms until the year 1453. But for us who want to hear the history of Cologne here, this is irrelevant, although there is one exception in which the Eastern Roman Empire becomes important for Cologne once again. But we will only get to that in 500 years. Roman Cologne was history, at least in political terms, because the Roman population was still there, even the city itself with its Roman city wall was still there, and many Roman infrastructures as well. Cologne had survived the turbulent time which is called the Migration Period comparatively well. And thus, this is the best starting condition for the new age that was about to begin. For Cologne, the Frankish era now began. An era that has been somewhat neglected in public up to now. Which is a pity because in the years 500 to 900, the foundation stone for Cologne's centuries-long golden age was laid out for the Middle Ages and early modern times. And as strange as it sounds, while epidemics, wars and catastrophes hit the entire Mediterranean region from the 6th century onwards and led to massive population declines, Cologne experienced something like a small growth phase. Actually, a sensation compared with the time of the early Middle Ages. How it may have looked like in Cologne shortly after the takeover of the Franks, well, we will devote ourselves to that in the next, but one episode. I would like to use the next episode to give a short summary of Roman Cologne. A largely chronological podcast often prevents one from dealing with developments and topics that are related over a longer period of time. Therefore, the next episode will not only be a summarized parrot fashion of the previous episodes, but will also provide one or two insights that may have been missed out so far. And above all, we will give an outlook on how the Roman heritage lives on in Cologne and how it influences the further development of the city and how the Roman Empire to this day lives on in the city and the people of Cologne. I look forward to hear from you again in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening to this very long episode. Stay true to me, recommend me further, and auf Wiedersehen. And as a quick side note, I'm sorry if this episode has some background noises. I had to move into our living room to record this episode due to reconstruction in our workroom. And don't forget the show notes. Maybe there's a link for you that you might find interesting. Thank you.